Hi, I'm Ben Weitzman, and this is My Life Wildlife. I work in the Marine Mammals Management Office, and I am a wildlife biologist for the Sea Otter Program. Otters are really interesting to me because they're a sentinel species, and they'll reflect both the health of the ecosystem, but they'll also have a profound impact on the function of the ecosystem. So I very much am one of those kids from a landlocked background that saw the underwater world and the ocean and just thought, wow, I, I want to do this. And I, I can think of multiple experiences from my childhood, you know, where teachers would say, what do you want to be? And it was like, marine biologist, marine biologist. I had started scuba diving when I was about 12 years old. My dad was a diver. And so when I graduated, I just thought, well, I want to go work as a diver in Santa Cruz. Sounds pretty cool. There's a state university there. Maybe I'll do that. And uh, moved down to Santa Cruz. I started teaching scuba diving. And then I heard about research diving. And that was that was kind of it. You know, every, everything kind of took off from there. While I was doing my undergraduate degree at UC Santa Cruz in 2005, I heard about a marine mammal training program that was training dolphins, sea lions, and sea otters for research purposes, for physiological studies. And I did that for a few years. And while conducting husbandry and animal training with the dolphins, sea lions, and otters, I had an opportunity to meet several researchers with the California Department of Fish and Game now California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And one of the guys, Jack Ames, had sort of invented the sea otter capture method and was one of the original biologists for the state. And he heard that I was a scuba diver and had been training the otters and just said, hey, I need somebody to come help me. Uh, We're going to do some otter captures. You interested? I was pursuing a, a Bachelor of Science in Marine Biology at the time and had been exposed to a lot of um, ecological studies focus on kelp forests and was very familiar with the role otters played. So I kind of had this interest in sea otters and here was this opportunity. So I said yes and the next week I was out on a boat in Monterey Bay handling sea otters in a capture net trying to figure out what I'd gotten myself into. And through that process was invited up to Alaska in 2009 and that was my first trip up here to help capture sea otters on the Alaska Peninsula. That first trip totally spoiled me for doing any sort of field research because I was out there on the Alaska Peninsula, had no idea where I actually was on the planet, but I was surrounded by bears and whales and sea lions and all these insanely majestic mountains, waterfalls coming out of the sky and crashing on the beach, Um, this kind of majestic place that looked just like something out of Lord of the Rings. And I was diving every day and just thought, this is heaven. After that trip, I'd been offered an opportunity to pursue a master's degree uh, studying sea otters in southeast Alaska. And so in 2010, I began my master's there at UC Santa Cruz under the mentorship of Jim Estes, who is an old school sea otter researcher and sort of wrote the book on the classical ecological example of trophic cascades in marine ecosystems um, out in the Western Aleutians, where when sea otters are highly abundant in the ecosystem, They consume sea urchins, reducing the grazing capacity, and that allows kelp forests to flourish. But when sea otters are absent from the system, the urchins can boom in their population density and completely overgraze kelp forests, reducing them to what's referred to as urchin barrens. And I I found this pattern fascinating. And so being able to go and work with Jim Estes and, and get to study sea otters in Alaska, I just thought I was the luckiest person. 
I've always found otters fascinating because they are like the coolest window into studying ecology. You cannot study a sea otter without also considering their effect on the ecosystem. When otters are absent and sea urchins flourish into an urchin barren state, it's really indicative that otters are not functionally present in the ecosystem when urchins dominate. However, once the otters arrive at a density that they can control the urchins, the system flips back into a kelp forest state. And so we can actually use this as a monitoring tool to understand the health of the sea otter population. If the ecosystem is healthy and in a kelp-dominated state, it likely reflects that the otters are at an abundance that they can help control the herbivores, the grazers, the sea urchins. They've had a very tumultuous past up in North America, you know, being hunted nearly to extinction throughout much of their range. They've been in recovery, and that is, you know, the mandate that we have at Fish and Wildlife Service is for the conservation and recovery of sea otters. However, we as humans over the last few hundred years had no concept of what an ecosystem should look like with a sea otter in it over a long time scale. So even in places where we've had otters now for 50 to 100 years and they've reached sort of their equilibrium density in the ecosystem, it's still relatively nascent in our memories of what the baseline should be for that ecosystem. So it's a really exciting time to be with Fish and Wildlife Service right now because sea otters are both recovering and we're doing our best for the conservation of the species. And it also comes with a lot of controversy with folks that have taken advantage of the rich shell fisheries in the absence of sea otters. And the need for understanding what does a balance look like in our new world order where sea otters are back in the picture. If you look at indigenous cultures throughout the range of sea otters, there's a very rich, diverse history of interaction with how they interacted and managed sea otters and also very different perspectives of, or recent perspectives of sea otters coming in. And from a lot of the indigenous communities' perspectives, it's a food security issue for subsistence resources and shellfish that they've come to depend on. And for some First Nations people in the indigenous communities down in British Columbia, this really ties back to understanding what their management strategies were like historically. So where they might have had clam gardens or particular bays and coves that they managed on a very local scale, there were still sea otters present in the system, but excluded from very small scale areas. When the United States was colonized and you basically had like all of the white people take over and begin to exploit resources for economic gain, it became a boon to our economy because of all the shellfish that had flourished in the absence of sea otters. And it became a sense of conflict for, is it sea otters? Is it shell fisheries? What's really changing things here? And so you kind of have this interesting mix that we're navigating now of how to manage sea otters for conservation, but also allow and acknowledge the need for traditional practices of management, traditional practices of harvest, not just in Southeast Alaska, but for sort of all the native and indigenous communities across the state. It's a pretty interesting time to be looking at otters in Alaska because we've got a very diverse set of challenges and issues to work through in, with the different stocks in the different parts of the state. So our population in the Southeast stock has been growing exponentially in some places reaching its carrying capacity and leveling out, but still expanding into areas where they've long been absent or perhaps never occupied because they were covered in glaciers long ago. 
In South Central Alaska, sea otters have generally recovered from the Exxon Valdez oil spill. They've been continuing to expand into various pockets and increase in density. In Lower Cook Inlet, for example, they've been continuing to grow their population size there. And currently we're investigating that population for the overlap with oil and gas exploration going on in the area. Um, we have a collaborative project with the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management and the U.S. Geological Survey that we're participating in to understand seasonal movements, habitat use, and diet. An example of our impacts to these critters, right, is we were, we were out on Attu at the very end of the Aleutian chain, and I was in an area called Massacre Bay where we were looking for sea otters with telescopes on shore. And I was trying to watch them feed, and there, it's a pretty low-density area, and I just thought, well, it might take me all day, but maybe if I find an otter or two, I'll get some data. And I was walking around with my scope, and I finally found a sea otter. And it looked to be a young one, perhaps a, a sub-adult to new adult. And uh, I got my scope on it, and I watched it make a couple dives and bring up a few sea urchins. And sea otters are awesome to watch feed because unlike any other marine mammal, they bring their prey up to the surface, and they wave it around for you. And they're like, look at what I've got. Look at this. And we have, we've caught enough sea otters to know the average paw width, and so we can actually estimate a size of their prey relative to their paw width, and then we can actually calculate an energy intake rate based on our estimated biomass for the prey they're consuming. From that energy intake rate and the studies we've done across the sea otter range, we're actually able to go through and calculate where the sea otter population might be relative to carrying capacity for the ecosystem. Because depending on the size and amount of prey being consumed, that's indicative of the resource availability to the population in the area. So I was out here doing this work in Massacre Bay, and I finally find a sea otter to watch. I get a couple observations of sea urchins, and then all of a sudden, the otter grabs a plastic water bottle from out of nowhere. And I just thought, well, that's odd. We're out here as remote as you can get, and there's trash. Like, that's kind of sad. And it's, it's the wilderness. There's no noise pollution around me. We just pretty much were out there in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, I hear crunching. And that sound continues. And I'm watching my sea otter crunch this water bottle with the opening towards its face, you know, little puffs of air blasting it in the face for over an hour and the otter falls asleep. And then the otter wakes up and it continues crunching again. And just the whole experience, you know, of having this, this opportunity to finally gather some data from Attu, finally seeing a few urchins get consumed in the system, and then just to have this otter playing with trash and kind of like, that was our afternoon together. I, I, yeah, I think about it and I kind of laugh. And because it, it also demonstrates to me the impacts we as humans have had on our planet that even in the most remote part of the world, you know, it's Attu itself was a military base, a heavy point of conflict during World War II. The Aleutians are like fence posts in the Pacific, so you still have garbage and trash that collects. And it, it was just kind of eye-opening in that regard. And also just the nature of sea otters really presented, you know, and in this case, the otter clearly was doing well enough that it could spend time playing and interacting with trash. And otters being the curious social creatures they are, are so fun in that regard. 
We had in California one year a sea otter that found a video camera underwater and was swimming around with it on its belly as if it was spying on us, turning the tables. I study sea otters not because they are cute and cuddly, but because they use that as a mask for their true nature. They have profound effects on the ecosystem, but they are truly like wolverines of the sea. They're social, they're aggressive, they have almost personality-like qualities, you know, that I, I don't want to anthropomorphize too much, but you get to know them as individuals, and they're very unique. They have specializations in their diet and their behaviors. And one of the things that I find so appealing is the ability for sea otter mothers to parent the way they do. I once was at an open mic night, and a singer was up there saying, if I could be reincarnated as anything, I'd come back as a sea otter. And after she presented, I, I had to go up and speak with her and inform her why she absolutely did not want to come back as a sea otter. In fact, that would be like the ultimate punishment, perhaps. Um, life is very, very challenging for female sea otters. Yet they excel at what they do. They excel at raising their young. They excel at finding prey. They have this ability to thrive in almost any ecosystem they find themselves in. And in Alaska, that is an incredibly diverse set of ecosystems from icebergs and glaciers and fjords to big sandy inlets like Cook Inlet to, you know, the shallow bottom waters of Bristol Bay and the Bering Sea, the rocky shorelines of the Aleutians, eelgrass beds, kelp forests. And I think that is just really, really neat in and of itself is their ability to adapt. And once they adapt, their ability to affect the system they're a part of. And I just, I sometimes find that inspiring, you know, to think about the way that they exist and persevere in a system that's like less than half their body temperature. It's really amazing that they, they even exist at all, I think. We are at a point where we are culturally and societally changing. In watching sea otters repatriate their historic range and affect the ecosystems they inhabit, they are affecting the way that we as humans interact with, benefit from, and utilize our marine environment. And if I could share any message regarding sea otters, it would be to have an open mind to what things can look like down the line. Given an opportunity, they could be not just an agent for change, but an agent for change for us to better exist in the world as it changes. This has been My Life Wildlife, a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. Producers Lisa Hupp and Chris Pacheco. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Audio editing, sound design, and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Production manager, Gabriella Montekin. Artwork by Michelle Lawson. In Alaska, the employees of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are shared stewards of world-renowned natural resources and our nation's last true wild places. The lands and waters of this place we call home nourish a vast and unique array of fish, wildlife, and people. Our hope is that each generation has the opportunity to live with, live from, discover, and enjoy the wildness of this awe-inspiring land 
and the people who love and depend on it.